Welcome uh, to our faithful listeners for tuning in to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast, where you learn about you know common orthopedic topics. We try to make the episodes within a reasonable amount of time um, and get you guys well versed on different topics. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Dr. Cole, and then we have our other host here on the line. Dr. J. Fitz here back with you guys again. Back again, back again like we never left. And um, today we have a, a, a great guest uh, in store. You know, we post great content actually on his, on his Instagram. So you, we'll actually give you guys a link to all of his um, social media at the end of this. Um, but I'll let Dr. Fitz go ahead and, and, and take us away here. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a great talk today. Uh, and it's kind of just going over the the basics of orthopedics. I mean, we, we, we talk about bone healing. We talk about different types of uh, fixation. Um, just kind of key topics that sometimes get overlooked in orthopedics, but it is really kind of the bread and butter and just uh, the, the, the foundation of ortho. Uh, and again, it's Dr. Earhart. He did his residency at the McGaw Medical Center, Northwestern University. Uh, he did his fellowship in orthopedic trauma out at Case Western. Uh, and like we said, I think we may even met him from Instagram. He has a huge, uh, well, I'm not going to say huge, but a nice size following on Instagram. And he puts out some great cases. So to this day, I still. Very good. I mean, great cases. I I, yes. I still save his cases now. If I'm at work and I see him post something, I save it so I can kind of yep. go back and follow it now. So he's pretty amazing. We're going to get right into this talk. I don't want to waste too much of you guys' time. I want you to be able to fully uh, immerse yourselves into this amazing talk. So we're going to jump right into it, guys. Full immersion. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Okay, welcome to another episode of Nailed It, orthopedic podcast. We have another great show in line for you. We have uh, our guest speaker, Dr. Earhart here. Uh, coming in and spending a little time with us, going to teach us some of the uh, strategies he used for just preoperative planning, which I'm really looking forward to, Dr. Earhart. I think it's going to be really good. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, personally, I think pre-op planning just uh, is something that's, you know, kind of forgotten, but we do it so fast that maybe we don't put as much thought into it as residents as we probably should. But uh, so I'm looking to get a whole lot out of this uh, this talk. And uh, but before we get too far, we always ask a few questions just to see kind of, you know, get to know our guests. So I have a couple questions there. Not, not nothing too much. Not too many curveballs uh, with this first one. I was just going to ask, why did you choose uh, trauma to, to go into for your specialty? I think I, uh, I went into trauma um, for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, I love the variety of it. Um, I didn't really want to uh, pigeonhole myself into one particular part of the body. Um, you know, I've always been really fascinated by musculoskeletal anatomy and to be in a field where I have the, uh, the opportunity to, to operate in, you know, all different parts of the body just uh, was a big draw to begin with. Um, I love that it's founded in in very fundamental and uh, well-proven principles. Um, it's one of those fields where if you, 
if you truly study the principles and how they apply to every case, uh, you know, it makes you a better surgeon and it, it just, it's founded in, in, uh, concrete principles. And that was something that always, um, sat well with me. And then I, I personally really enjoyed the, the collegial nature of, of being a traumatologist. You know, I, I certainly have my fair share of isolated orthopedic injuries, but um, when I have the opportunity to, to work with my colleagues, both uh, within my own specialty and across specialties to take care of complex patients, uh, polytraumatized patients, it's, uh, it's a really uh, unique aspect uh, to being uh, in this field. And that's something that I really wanted to yeah, I think that's awesome. And I think uh, I actually just came back from AO Basic not too long ago, and they were just talking about those uh, principles of trauma and fixation, and uh, just learned all that. So, um, you know, I, I know exactly what you're talking. Well, I'm not gonna say I know ex- exactly what you're talking about, but I have a general <laughs> idea of what you could be referring to. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I, I think I, I think I know what you're talking about. A lot of people, a lot of my colleagues uh, that that are that our traumatologists, uh, they remember their first AO basic course and who was their table instructor. I certainly remember mine and I've had the privilege of working with him, um, you know, in courses, you know, since then, and he actually works not far from where I work. So, uh, the, the, uh, that, for that first AO basics, uh, course is a really special thing for, uh, yeah, it was was a great course. Uh, so I guess the second question that we have for you is what hobbies or, you know, interests do you have outside of, the field of orthopedics that you like to do? Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of a sports junkie. I'm a Chicago sports fan. So I uh, kind of try to put up with what the Cubs and Bears have to offer for me, which is sometimes good and sometimes not so good. Um, I enjoy just being outside. I enjoy spending time with my family. Just like the, I have two young kids. So nowadays uh, when I'm not working, I'm just trying to find ways to to spend time with my young kids, um, have a, a puppy, love hanging out with my dog. And so we just do a lot of family stuff now just try to enjoy the nice weather when we, when we're fortunate enough to have it here in Northern Illinois and, um, enjoy snowboarding when I have the opportunity to get away. And, uh, that's about it. Oh, wow. Snowboarding. Okay. That sounds fun. <laughs> it is fun. Very fun. Sounds fun. Okay. So, we're we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and kick things off. Uh, I'm really looking at, looking forward to this this particular talk. So it's gonna be a little bit different. Usually we start off with a case with most of our podcasts, but I think this one I'm gonna leave a little bit broad. Uh, okay. So the the big talk is gonna be preoperative planning, uh, and this is more so geared towards when you have that patient who comes in uh, with this fracture. What goes into play for as far as how you're going to go about the actual treatment of this patient? So, but before we get too far into it, can can we just kind of get into some of the basic science of uh, bone healing? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, I think uh, what's unique about about fixing fractures is that uh, you're really trying to find a, a marriage between biology and stability, and it really doesn't matter how you're fixing a fracture, what mode of healing you're going for. If you don't strike that balance, uh, you're, you're just not going to uh, be successful. And um, an interesting uh, kind of analogy that I, that I was told a long time ago, and I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember the source of this, but uh, a lot of people joke with me that I'm a carpenter. And um, I, I, was at a, I know it was at some course where uh, it must have been an AO course, and whoever the speaker was said they're not really carpenters, they're a gardener. And, and it, it struck me, it was kind of like a one-off comment, but it's absolutely true. 
You know, an orthopedic traumatologist is a gardener trying to make things grow. Our bones are alive and our goal is to keep them that way. So whenever you're, uh, whenever you're planning on fixing a fracture, it's important to first uh, kind of break down those two aspects of how you're going to deal with that injury in terms of its biology, in terms of its stability. So when you look at, uh, at the way that bones heal um, with that marriage, there's, there's two modes of healing, uh, primary healing and secondary healing. So I usually start uh, with my residents talking about uh, secondary healing, which is sort of the way our bones heal in nature. If we fall in the middle of the woods and we're, we have no access to a hospital, um, our bones heal through the secondary mechanism. And really what it is, it's a, it's sort of a, it, it mimics the ossification of development and it's a multi-stage uh, tissue differentiation process, which starts out with a inflammatory phase, no different than any other inflammatory reaction in the body. Um, where um, the, the bleeding bone creates the hematoma. The hematoma slowly over time will um, uh, organize itself, uh, form a, a scaffold, and then you enter a, a repair phase where that scaffold uh, becomes a, a soft callus uh, matrix uh, comprised of kind of a cartilaginous material. And then over time, that soft callus will uh, become hard callus as it begins to ossify, um, forming disorganized woven bone. And then that disorganized bone over time enters the final stage of remodeling where uh, cutting cones cut across and reorganize uh, that woven bone into uh, uh, organized lamellar bone along the lines of stress for that fracture. So it's a very well orchestrated process. And uh, you know, if, if, uh, if the injury has sufficient biology, sufficient stability, that process can continue. Uh, the other process is primary healing. And primary healing is essentially what I tell my residents. It's, it's uh, what separates us from the paper clips. So every day we walk around and we accumulate uh, microscopic trauma to our skeleton in areas of particularly tension. And if we did not have primary healing mechanisms, those microscopic injuries would accumulate over time and turn into macroscopic fractures. Um, we call them stress fractures, um, you know, in, in, uh, in clinical practice. And um, the primary healing process is what uh, basically repairs that daily damage. So that's where uh, cutting cones um, consisting of uh, an osteoclastic tip uh, uh, basically eat across um, the, the area to be repaired, um, carrying with it a nutrient uh, vessel and a tail of osteoblasts, which will lay down uh, new lamellar bone. Um, along the lines of stress, repairing that injury directly. And so this occurs without callus formation, and it only occurs in certain mechanical environments. So um, I try to you know, keep those two processes uh, organized in my head um, and keep it, think about those things when I'm uh, preparing to fix a fracture. So that sort of deals with the, uh, the biologic side. Uh, from a stability standpoint, um, what we think about then is uh, is the idea of the mechanical environment uh, in which a fracture exists, and um, this is based on the work uh, done out of the AO lab um, by Dr. Stephen Perrin uh, back in the '60s and '70s. And uh, without getting too uh, too nerdy or too long-winded, essentially what this is is it's talking about the strain at the fracture, essentially how much a fracture is able to move um, uh, within the zone of injury. So strain is essentially when you take an object and you apply a stress and that object changes, changes in length, it's the ratio of the change in length to the original length. And so um, 
the way I try to conceptualize it is if you have a fracture or fracture gap, um, the, the amount of motion or change in length of that fracture gap divided by the original gap is the amount of strain being experienced within that gap. So if, for example, if you have a one millimeter gap and that gap is able to move one millimeter, you have a pretty high strain environment. Whereas if it can only move 0.1 millimeter, it's a relatively low strain environment. Um, and by taking that really simple ratio, um, you can use that to uh, uh, kind of devise the, uh, the strain environment of a fracture. And if you can get the strain sufficiently low, meaning sufficiently stable, the body will heal through its normal secondary healing mechanisms. The interesting thing is when you can make that ratio zero, where there is absolutely no motion, absolute stability, uh, that's where you can get uh, a, uh, a primary healing process. Um, and that's, you know, you can take those two mechanisms and put them together and kind of then move on to the basic AO principles of, of fracture. Right. It, it, now you're referring to, I, I think I, I recall this from AO where, you know, this, the amount of strain is somewhere like less than 2% between two and 10% and greater than 10%. Is that kind of what you're referring to when we're speaking about strain and everything? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if you have a highly unstable situation where the strain is, you know, upwards of 100%, the body's only going to be able to form, you know, granulation tissue, very, um, very uh, uh, flimsy and unmechanically sound tissue. Uh, if you get that strain down into, you know, 10 to 20%, you might be able to form some scar tissue with a little bit more stability, but not bone. And yeah, if you can get it down below 5%, um, that's when the body is able to form uh, form callus and and eventually remodel into uh, lamellar bone through so, the so when you see a uh, when you see a fracture like what in your mind makes you think okay well I want this fracture to heal by primary uh, healing versus secondary healing yeah so that's a really good question and um, I think you know there's there are um, there are areas of, of gray for making that determination with, with one major exception and that's uh, at an articulation. So articular fractures, we are uh, obligated to fix uh, with uh, or set them up for primary healing through anatomic reductions, uh, generating compression, you know, getting strain to zero and eliminating any potential callus formation. So articular fractures uh, require primary, uh, primary healing. Um, through absolute stability. Um, diaphyseal fractures, non-articular fractures, um, if they're simple, some, some can be treated uh, with primary healing, some can be treated with secondary healing. Um, highly comminuted fractures, uh, so highly comminuted metadiaphyseal fractures, uh, we want to heal with secondary, secondary healing. Um, and the reason we want to do that is we don't want to take a highly comminuted fracture, we don't want to go in and try to piece everything back together and potentially disrupt the blood supply. Um, and, and disrupt the biology any further than it's already been disrupted from the injury. So um, I think that uh, those would be the two kind of absolute situations. So highly comminuted situations, um, biologically impaired situations, you're going to want to go for secondary healing, but any articular situation needs primary healing. Absolutely. So let's see, in, in, in some cases, is it true that you can sometimes even do primary and secondary healing for a certain certain types of fractures oh absolutely um i think uh you know that's sort of the the next evolution in in thinking about fractures and and uh and and planning ahead for surgery there are instances where 
um, within, within a single bone, there are multiple zones of injury and you're going to treat those multiple zones uh, differently. I think the most common example that we think of would be uh, a distal femur fracture with intraarticular extension. So if you have a, um, you know, a, an intraarticular distal femur, you're going to want to repair the articular surface with an anatomic reduction and, and um, uh, compression. But uh, if that same fracture uh, extends into the metaphysis and it's highly comminuted, you're going to want to, uh, you know, bypass that area and allow that to heal through secondary healing mechanisms. So that can all be considered the same fracture, but each zone of injury might require um, a, a different construct and different modes of healing. Okay. And so, all right. So, so now that we know um, about primary versus secondary healing, can we get into some of the different uh, fixation constructs that are used in orthopedics now for, you know, fracture fixation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you're talking about, uh, about, let me, let me take a step back. The, the, um, you know, at the AO courses, what they're going to teach you is that, uh, you know, your internal fixation devices have a certain form and certain function, and um, you aren't going to uh, obtain a function just because you have a certain type of, of fixation device. So when it comes to um, obtaining uh, primary healing through compression, there are different ways that you can generate that compression. So there are um, compression through lag screw, which can be done, a lag screw can be done by technique or by design. There's compression plating, there's buttress plating or anti-glide plating. Um, and uh, I think that's, am I missing one? Oh. Uh, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> I think that's it. So the point is uh, you want to, so any, any one of those techniques is going to uh, generate compression and allow for primary healing. Um, secondary healing can be achieved through different mechanisms that can include uh, casting or, or, or splinting or, or slinging. Um, intramedullary nails, external fixation, bridge plating. Um, so lots of different ways that you can achieve uh, uh, secondary healing. And so you can use the same implant to achieve those different mechanisms of healing by um, by applying them in appropriate. Now ways. let's talk about the uh, the lag screwing and typically like kind of how that works. You know, we have the near hole, far hole. Like how exactly does that, uh, does the lag screw work in achieving primary fixation, primary yeah, so a lag screw, yeah, a lag screw can be done uh, two different ways. So there's there's by technique, and by technique would be where you have an you know an oblique fracture, and you're gonna um, you're gonna overdrill the near cortex up to the level of the fracture with the drill uh, diameter equal to the uh, thread diameter of the screw, uh, and then you're gonna drill the far cortex with the core diameter of the screw. So then you get that gets you into kind of more of a screw anatomy. So our, uh, screws have a core diameter, which is the, the shaft, and then they have um, a width to their thread. So by drilling the width of the thread uh, on the near cortex and the core diameter on the far, on the far cortex, and then by uh, countersinking the near cortex to apply even pressure as the screw comes down, it's gonna engage the far cortex and draw it towards the near cortex generating compression. Um, to do it by, uh, by design, would be to uh, take a screw that is only partially threaded where you don't need to overdrill uh, the near cortex and it only has threads to engage that far cortex for you. And, and when you say that, just that turn to overdrill, is that is that the whole, the whole process of drilling the diameter of the screw and the near hole? 
it's the, correct. Uh, so you're drilling the um, the thread diameter of the screw. So for a, a three five screw, you know, a standard small fragment screw, um, you're going to drill uh, 3.5 millimeters on the near cortex so that the threads don't have the opportunity to engage. And then the far cortex, you will drill at the core diameter, which for most standard screws uh, is 2.5 millimeters. And then that changes, uh, obviously, depending on the size of the screw. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah, that's like, I know they probably harked that at uh, AO, and I know my colleague, he, he gets an OR a little bit more than I do, but I know that's like one of the, I mean, one of the first things you might learn is when you step into a to mm -hmm. OR uh, suite with uh, orthopedic, you know, we use this quite a bit, this technique quite a bit. So that's good to, I'm really glad that you was able to break it. Can we kind of touch on um, uh, achieving a primary or absolute fixation or stability through compressing through a plate and kind of how that, how that works? Yeah. So that can be done in, in different ways. Um, so uh, compression plating can be done um, using the design of certain plates. Um, if let's say you have a transverse fracture of a of a you know a long bone, a diaphyseal fracture of a long bone, uh, you can secure the bone uh, with or the plate to the bone on one side, and then um, uh, once it's secured on one side, you you can drill the second screw on the on the other side, but you drill eccentrically within the hole designed for that screw. Uh, you you basically put the drill uh, far away as far away as you can from the uh, fracture site within the screw hole. And then as the screw goes down, the rounded screw head will engage the plate. And as you continue to tighten it down, it will basically draw the plate over, which essentially pulls the, uh, the fractured ends of the bone together. Um, you can do that uh, actually sometimes more than once, uh, two or three times, uh, and each time generating about a millimeter of compression. There's other nuances to, to, to that technique, but that's the, essentially the idea behind a dynamic compression plate. Um, the other way that you can generate compression uh, through a plate would be to use um, uh, a push-pull technique uh, by placing a screw outside of the plate on one side of the fracture and then using a uh, clamp um, called a verbruge. You stick the verbruge into the plate and then around the screw, and by squeezing that clamp together, you can draw um, the fracture together if it's already fixed on one side. Hmm. So that's, again, using a, a technique called a push-pull screw. Okay. And so I guess first, let me, so there was a compression plate and we talk about, I guess, uh, like a locking, like a locking plate as well. Yeah. That, so locking plate, locking uh, technology is, uh, that's a whole, a whole big can of worms. Uh, locking plate technology essentially um, is where you, um, where the screw uh, threads into the plate, uh, creating a fixed angle at the uh, at the uh, screw plate interface. The idea behind that is that um, the plate will uh, fail by a different mechanism. So, this technology was originally designed for uh, for osteoporotic bone um, in the proximal humerus. And the idea is that um, standard screws, um, which are which don't engage the plate, are able to toggle uh, back and forth within the plate. And so if you have bad bone and you can't generate uh, sufficient torque between the plate and the bone, over time, those screws can, can basically uh, kind of windshield wiper back and forth and loosen, and they can sort of all fail uh, at once catastrophically. Um, locking plates uh, allow the screws to lock into the plate. They don't generate any uh, torque of the plate against the bone. They gain their stability 
by creating a uh, fixed angle purchase into the bone, whereby uh, you can imagine in order for that to fail, uh, the screws would have to uh, fail all at once, cutting out of the bone um, catastrophically. And so it, it creates a, a stronger mechanical uh, fixation in bad bone. And I believe I misspoke, actually, I apologize. So for standard plates, they can fail sequentially. So because those screws can toggle, uh, the plate can lift off the bone as the farthest screws uh, toggle and loosen more, and then they can sequentially loosen more and more, allowing the plate to fail. Uh, with locking fixation, the entire plate would have to fail at once. And, and while we're on it, can we talk about working length and kind of its importance in, in dealing with fractures and since we're talking about plates and different screws? Yeah, so working length is a is a term that uh, kind of jumps to to the other side of healing. So that's for callus formation, uh, secondary healing. Uh, working length refers to the um, the distance um, between uh, the screws closest to a zone of injury on either side of the zone of injury. Um, and so the idea being that um, uh, when you when you bridge across a comminuted fracture. Um, you know, with a bridge plate, uh, the idea is that you want to uh, leave enough distance between your fixation proximal and distal to the fracture to allow for sufficient micro motion to create that low strain environment that will allow the bone to heal. Um, I think uh, one of the things that orthopedic surgeons struggle with is how to gauge what that proper working length is. Um, and, and that's certainly um, a challenge that we don't have a uh, a quantitative solution for at this point. That's sort of the art of, of fixation in, in those uh, comminuted right. uh, fracture patterns. And, and you know, uh, since we're also talking about plating, I guess the whole thing is on plating. Can we kind of touch on the difference between buttress and an anti-glide plate, like how is the plate is used? Sure, yeah. So um, I, I've heard differing, uh, differing opinions on how those two terms are used differently. Um, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that both of those plating techniques are designed to uh, resist shear, um, and they are both designed to generate compression. So at the end of the day, they're both kind of doing the same thing. So in a, in a fracture that is susceptible to shear, you are using that uh, plate device to uh, generate compression at the apex of a fracture and prevent um, a segment from shearing. Uh, buttress is a term that gets used in the articular setting. So when you have a partial articular fracture, most you know classic one would be the uh, longitudinal split of the lateral plateau. Um, that fracture is highly susceptible to shear. And so a buttress plate will uh, place a screw at the apex of that fracture, which compresses at the apex and also creates an axilla that prevents that fracture from shearing distally uh, and displacing. Um, you know, in, in the AO, they talk about uh, uh, articular fractures as A types, B types, and C types. B types are the partial articular fractures, and the uh, you know the, the saying is that B is for buttress. So that's where that term gets used. Anti-glide is just another anti-shear compression generating device, um, but that's the way I understand it uh, for diaphyseal fractures, so for non-articular fractures. And the classic example would be uh, the distal fibula. So you can have a, a Weber you know, B or a Weber C uh, oblique distal fibula fracture. And by placing a uh, plate at the apex of that fracture and then you know, a lag screw through the plate, you can create a, uh, an anti-glide device which will resist shear and generate compression. Nice. 
Okay. So we've been talking about some of the devices that we, we use sometimes for most of them. I know you can possibly use them for absolute or uh, absolute stability. So what are some of the, the techniques that you uh, we use sometimes for, uh, I guess, relative stability for some of these fractures? Yeah, so it, it sort of depends on um, on the, the fracture and the clinical scenario, but the most common t- uh, secondary healing, relatively stable devices would be external fixators, uh, intramedullary nails, uh, bridge plates, um, and... Uh, uh, and frankly, casts or splints. So um, all of those allow for, uh, you know, relative stability and relative micromotion if done correctly and, and callus healing. Um, we use those different techniques for different fracture types in different parts of the body. And, um, but again, the, the goal is the same. And I think sometimes that gets lost. We, we look at certain fractures and we're sort of instinctually uh, thinking that we're going to use one device or another when what we should be thinking about is, what mode of healing are we shooting for? Okay, absolutely. I I think this was really good because I mean, just sometimes getting a, a good understanding of the all the different types of techniques and plates that we have is is uh, I don't know. It's a lot to grasp, especially for someone who uh, just kind of new to it all. So I think that was very. I think it was very helpful. Um, I know this this whole talk was really about preoperative planning just is there something that a way that you kind of sum this up for all of your patients because i mean it's a lot to kind of keep in mind you got to keep in mind about the patient uh the 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 fracture and you know i guess what's the actual goal so how do you just kind of put all this together when you when you're looking into a new patient that you receive you get uh, for a fracture yeah that's that's a really good question um it's it's a it's a huge, you know, if you're, if you're going to be very cerebral about it, it's, it can be a very kind of daunting task to, to preoperatively plan a complex patient and a complex fracture. But um, I think that the way that has worked best for me and the way that I try to teach my residents to do it is to first sort of think about the ideal situation. You know, we're taught to treat our patients, not to treat x-rays, but I think it's sometimes helpful, especially early on uh, when you're learning and when you're in practice early on to sort of look at each individual fracture and first decide um, what is the optimal way to treat this injury, looking at it as an x-ray. And so um, that, that sort of eliminates some of the uh, patient-specific factors that can sometimes change what you would do from the ideal setting to uh, you know, an alternative uh, approach. Um, so what I try to do first is look at the injury and break it down into its component parts. So sometimes we're lucky and we get a fracture that is fairly simple and it's, you know, a, an isolated uh, injury to a single segment or portion of the bone, um, you know, easy to kind of uh, uh, classify and easy to describe. And we can take that injury and, and, and sort of ask ourselves how we want it to heal. Sometimes we look at injuries and they're much more complex. So you can get a patient, for instance, who has perhaps a bicondylar tibia plateau, and then you look more closely and you realize they also have significant extension into the shaft that's comminuted. Then you look closely at the lateral and you notice that they have a free tibial tubercle component. So each of those components of that injury may require different modes of treatment and different modes of healing. So I think the first thing that I try to do is I try to organize a list 
of all the problems that I have to deal with, starting with the components of the fracture and then the other associated uh, uh, injuries, like whether or not it's an open fracture, whether there's compromised soft tissues, et cetera. Um, once I've made a list of all those uh, injuries, I've then tried to teach my residents to first decide how you want that injury to heal. And I think that um, that's, that's sort of a step that gets lost a lot of the times uh, when, when, when residents or even when uh, attending surgeons um, you know, try to attack an injury is that they, they go immediately to the construct or they go immediately to the approach and they don't stop and think to themselves, how do I actually want this bone to heal? What's the optimal way to get this bone to heal? Um, and what's nice about doing that is that not only can you come up with, you know, perhaps the most appropriate uh, uh, construct to achieve that goal, but then you can come up with plan B and plan C and plan D because you don't always know what's going to work in the operating room. Sometimes you need to bail out because your first uh, go at it doesn't work out the way you, you had expected. Um, the best example I would give of that and sort of what got me turned on to this topic, uh, you know, as an educator and as a surgeon was I, uh, I used to ask uh, uh, my residents, you know, we would get a, a bimalleolar ankle fracture and they would take a look at it and I would ask them, you know, what their plan would be for treating this injury. And they would say, well, I want to do a, a lag screw on the fibula and I want to put on a one-third tubular plate and then I want to put in uh, a partially threaded screw on the medial malleolus. And I would say, okay, that sounds pretty good. Uh, that's fine. And we would go to the operating room and sometimes that plan would work and sometimes it wouldn't. And it's when it wouldn't that was the most interesting because if you're not thinking in terms of modes of healing, you're not always ready for that failure. So now what I say to them is, okay, how do you want that fibula to heal? So say you have a simple Weber B, you know, oblique distal fibula fracture. And they say to me, well, it's a simple oblique fracture. I want that to heal by primary healing. And I say, okay, that's great. How do you want to achieve that goal? And most of them will say to me, well, I want to do... Uh, a lag screw. And I'll say, okay, that's great. We're going to try that lag screw. Now let's say this patient has bad bone and you, you put in that lag screw and it just has no purchase whatsoever. The bone is too soft and you're not generating any compression. Are you going to give up and just kind of bail out and put a plate on and call it a day? Or, or are you going to find an alternative way to, to achieve your goal? And the reality is, if you think of it this way, you'll recognize that if a lag screw doesn't work to achieve compression, you can bail out to an anti-glide plate. So you can put in that anti-glide plate device, which you know, is uh, mechanically a lot stronger in, in, uh, in osteoporotic bone. And it uh, is a great way for generating compression in the same way that a lag screw would. Um, and so I'll, I'll bail out to that if I have to. Um, same thing with uh, the medial malleolus. So um, if we try to put in a lag screw in the medial malleolus and it just doesn't gain a lot of purchase, we'll how are you going to bail out on that? Well, you might try putting in a tension band plate instead. A tension band plate can generate as much or more compression as a lag screw and achieve the same goal for healing. So that's sort of what I'm getting at when I talk about preoperative planning. You know, there's, there's certainly the, the, the AO technique of tracing out fractures and, you know, writing out your reduction sequence and writing out your plans. But I think if you, if you really take a step back and you go to that highest level of how bones heal, you're going to be prepared not only for how you think you're going to treat something, but how you're going to bail yourself out if it doesn't work. I think that was a, a great talk. I think that was a great explanation. I, I really hope people really pay attention to that last point you just said of how to look at fractures and have, you know, a plan A, but also a plan B in case your first thing doesn't work. I think we did. I think this was a great overview. Uh, Dr. Earhart, really want to say thank you for your time and, and coming in and speaking on this podcast and helping us educate the people 
Um, I think it was a really good talk. Now, thank you all for listening to that episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast with Dr. Earhart. I think he did a really great job kind of going through pre-op planning and really breaking it down. So I hope you guys really enjoyed that. Um, you know, we always we also just wanted to point out that we also have, you know, tension band wiring, which uh, changes uh, tension forces and the compressive forces. Y'all can kind of read and look that up. Go to nailitortho.com to find our show notes. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us at Instagram at nailedortho.com.